time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty. Welcome to the Cobalt, episode two thirty six. Hello, <laughs> Nescafe. How are you, Nescafe? What? <laughs> Instead of I'm saying s- or whatever that French thing is, you change it to the nineteen uh, eighties coffee Nescafe because it's right. easier to remember. Nineteen eighties coffee. I don't Still know. Was it? Cafe. Is it? Yeah. I have no oh, idea. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I drink. I don't know what I drink. I, whatever the wife Your gets own me. Urine, I think. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's yeah. healthier. Yeah. Mm. It's pure. So this is going to be our last NATO episode, I think. Yay! Yeah, pretty sure totally. this this is it. Because again, as I said at the beginning of the last episode, what I've been trying to yeah. do in this NATO series is answer the questions for myself about the, the how, where, and why. NATO yeah. was created, you know, stripping mm-hmm. away the the propagandistic version of the story that we're all relatively familiar with, that it was to defend yeah. the Western Europe uh, from the evil Ruskies. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more to it than that. But yeah. where we left it the last time, uh, this international working group led by two Americans from the State Department, Hickerson mm-hmm. and Achilles, drafted a, uh, a basically a working paper called the Washington Paper. It was a, right. a draft of what a transatlantic security system would look like. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. Europe was trying to put into place um, a credible defense organization of its own, which was one of America's stipulations. This is the right. Wudo that you mentioned last time, mm-hmm. uh, sung to the tune of Lido by Boz Skaggs, the Western Union Defense Organization. So America wanted to see that Europe would at least make some attempt to defend itself uh, if it got itself into trouble. Can't just rely on the Americans to do everything. It's going to be very hard to sell that to the American people, that America's just going to ride in and defend Europe every time at the cost of some American lives and American money. Exactly. And... As I said last time, to understand some of that reluctance, mm-hmm. outside of the, the the ability to sell it to the general public, you, you have to kind of understand that this was happening at a time before the Pentagon had unlimited budgets. Yes. Um, I know it's hard not, to believe. Yes. yes. There was a time there was when a time. <laughs> there, there was a time when yes. I rode a roller coaster from Coney Island to Key West. It's a Harry Connick song. Uh, oh, what goes cool. back earlier. He did a cover of it. Anyway. Um, gotcha. Yeah, as I said at the end of the last episode, so back in these days, mm-hmm. you know, pre-NATO, um, mm-hmm. the US had a, an isolationist yes. policy on, on geopolitical events and would get involved if it absolutely had to <laughs> right. to protect its uh, interests, which mm-hmm. in World War One and World War Two, really meant uh, we've loaned a lot of money to some countries and it looks like yes. they're about to lose. We need to get involved <laughs> to protect our economic investment yeah. in Lend-Lease or like whatever it was. Yeah, we yes, want that money yes. back. And if the Germans win, we're probably never going to see that money again. Right. And um, a lot of rich white guys and some rich Jewish guys are going to be upset that they've lost all not their happy. money. So we better That's we better. Good. Go yeah. go to war in order to yeah. get their money back. Yeah. Um, could, could I just just real quick? And I, you didn't wink, and I apologize. But um, a part of selling this to the American people, the wudo, if you will, um, uh, how much wudo? If you could, do, no, there was a joke in there somewhere. But anyway, <laughs> the Joint Chiefs of Staff sent over some of their representatives to Europe to check out wudo. Not exactly wowed thunderstruck, whatever the proper term is, but they sign off on it anyway. And a part of that was Truman said, look, we're going to start mass producing a shit ton of weapons because everybody who's a part of this is going to want weapons from us. But I promise you, 
American branches of the military, you will get yours first before they get theirs. And the chief of jazz said, okay, I like the way you talk, sir. And they signed off and said, yes, Wudo was a uh, was the beginnings of a credible entity that would be able to help one day, you know, resist the Russians. So there's, there's politics. Why is there politics? Because there's money involved. And the other part of that, I just mentioned this real quick. You mentioned Lend-Lease a second ago. The Americans had learned a lesson from World War II. They said, this is not going to be like Lend-Lease. We want some money back. And so the European countries went, we don't have any money. And the Americans said, you got raw materials, don't you? We'll send you stuff. We'll send you weapons. You make up your shopping list. But we're going to want raw materials back from you as payback. Again, this is not Lendly. So America, again, we're doing good, but we're also doing good for ourselves. And that is the American way. How much Wudo would a Wudo do no, if a Wudo, wudo would do Wudo? <laughs> somebody, somebody work on that for us. Well, Carol? and... and- Keep in mind that America is already uh, going to give European countries a line of credit to the tune of about mm-hmm. thirteen billion contemporary dollars, contemporaneous dollars, right. not late nineteen forty-eight, forty-nine dollars. So they've already, uh, which is a lot of money uh, it is. back then. And well, and, and, and as a comparison, mm-hmm. um, Truman had set a hard line. Uh, yeah. For military spending for the 1950 budget of 15 billion dollars, they're giving. I can't work with that. Europe, yeah. 13 point something billion dollars right. for yeah. the Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm. So let's say 14 billion dollars. So it's almost as much as the entire U.S. military budget is the right. going for the. And now they need to come up with more to <sighs> defend that 13 billion dollars. Yes. And it's just not there in the budget. They haven't figured out, you know, they're looking, Truman's looking under the lounge in the Oval Office. He's he's collecting coins everywhere. He's he's running um, GoFundMe campaigns. Uh, Every time he goes by a payphone, he checks the little slot to see if there's a quarter or nickel in there. Yeah, Yeah, he's checking people's pockets as they come in. Why? Because he's the president. He can do that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, so he's trying to find some, some funds. Yeah. Uh, and this, you know, according to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, this $15 billion that they'd set aside for the defence budget of 950 wasn't even enough no. to get that done, let alone support all of Europe. They're like, well, exactly. we can't even support I'm embarrassed. country. I'm embarrassed for you for offering me $15 billion. billion. It's not enough. But, 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 but. I forgot the mill and, and the bill. they yeah. didn't have enough people. They hadn't yet... That's you know, right. They, they, That's they right. Let, let go all of the true, not all, but vast majority of the guys that yes. signed up for World War II. Because it costs money. A, they don't have a big standing army. Exactly. It costs money. Right. Yeah. Um, but here's the here's the problem, and this is where mm-hmm. it gets down to the nuts and bolts of this whole NATO thing. They had already right. committed to the ERP slash the Marshall Plan. They had right. already committed money. It, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, <laughs> but now, you know, mm-hmm. so basically the story is, if we sum up the last 15 episodes, what the fuck we've done on that? <laughs> the story is that the US, some bright, some you know, bright guys realise, sure. well, shit, um, we, we, in order for our economy to be healthy, we need to be able to sell our goods and services to people overseas. Yes, people overseas, yes. which is mostly Europe. Europe doesn't right. have any money to buy new. our shit. New, new, right? Um, so what if we give them money to buy our shit? Right. Uh, we'll take money from our taxpayers. We'll we'll, yeah. we'll give it to these European countries as a line of credit. Mm-hmm. So then they could buy our shit, and we can sell our shit. Right. And uh, our businesses will do well because they're selling stuff to Europe. Yeah, uh, sure, we I could spend that stuff on schools and and hospitals and that kind of stuff. But boring, you know, yeah. But also, their concern was if if we don't give them money, right. then the Russians might give them money, and then they become part of the Soviet trading bloc, and we've lost them for yeah. who knows how long. As part of our economy, we'll never get to sell them. If we can't sell our shit, then our businesses go broke, you know, we don't get to make a lot of money. 
But they've and, already committed. Yeah. No, I haven't winked. Yes. Don't, nope, don't. Nope, nope, wait, nope, wait. nope. So they committed the money, but then <laughs> one of the stipulations that they put on the money was if we give you this money, you mm-hmm. have to make sure that the socialists don't come and take the money or the stuff that you buy with the money because we're not really right. giving you money. We're giving you a line of exactly. credit. We, you need to make sure that the dirty, dirty, dirty <laughs> socialists don't take over your country like they just did in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> right. And because we don't want the dirty, dirty socialists getting uh, our lines of credit once we've committed exactly. it. Or our tractors or and our mm-hmm. um you know harvesters trucks. i don't know yes. trucks yeah whatever stuff. it is yeah, yeah. we yeah. don't want and them getting shoes. that shit because you know then they'll be then they'll do well and we don't want them doing yeah. it Nobody so you need that. to you need to show us you're going to defend yes. that you're going to shut down the socialists in your country and you're going to have you know some sort of a military presence to stop the russians from coming in the europeans said well uh, we are very sorry we cannot do that we do not have the we do not have that you give us the money and then we yeah. can build an army and they go no you show us you've got an army and then we'll give you the money but we cannot do that you yeah. give us the money and then we can and, and it was one of those things so <laughs> so the it, it was a quandary it was the americans had committed they right? committed <laughs> To giving the money, but they didn't want to give the money until the Europeans yeah. could defend the money, and the Europeans yeah. say we can't defend the money until we have money to defend the money. You need money to make money. Yeah. Uh, Lies no. across. Yeah, that's why I don't rob anybody until they're leaving the ATM. Very important. Don't rob them on the way to the ATM. Mm. Wait till they got the thirteen billion dollars, yeah. then you hold up the gun. And the yeah, and the other thing was. Um, yeah, and we all know that communists, all their mothers are dirty, dirty whores. That's not the point. Not the point. Point is, we can't give them a whole bunch of money and then Soviets come in or whoever other communists take over. No, we have to defend the money we gave them with more money and troops and a commitment. Wow, this got deep real quick. Your mother is a dirty, dirty <laughs> whore. <laughs> So let's talk about the National Security Council for a bit. So there's NSC mm-hmm. 9-3, which is this top-secret document issued by the National Security Council in the US in 1948 as part of the Truman administration's um, response to the Soviet Union's increasing influence in Europe, and it outlined a, a series of policy recommendations that were going to promote economic and military aid to Western European countries. This is part of where the Marshall Plan comes from. And it recommended a significant increase in military aid to Western Europe, including a unified military command structure to Mm. coordinate European defence efforts against Soviet aggression. Right. And as off the back of that, the Joint Chiefs of Staff set up military talks in London. So this mm-hmm. is where after the working group, the ambassadors in the working group, around about the same time as that's happening, the military guys are having their own military discussions. They don't yes. know how they're going to fund it yet, but there yeah. is this idea that you know everyone needs to get their military ducks uh, lined up. Yeah. Then NSC 14-1 was approved by Truman July 10th, 1948, and it called for the establishment of a permanent military establishment in the United yes. States to create a strong uh, defense mm-hmm. to deter possible future aggression from the Soviet Union. And this, yeah. uh, my friends, is when U.S. defense budgets started to go nuts. Right. This is when right. the U.S. moved to a permanent war footing. Mm-hmm. So let me give you Literally. some examples in numbers. All right. In 1948... The defense budget in the United States in 1948 dollars was 9.1 billion dollars. Okay. Now, for comparison, do you know what the mm-hmm. highest defense budget ever was before World War Two? Uh you said that was nine billion. Uh, I have no idea. Two billion. I have no idea. Yeah, on the money, 1.8 billion. Oh wow! So that was before not, thank you, guys. In 1940, the year mm-hmm. before Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. The U.S. defense budget, the highest ever up to that yes. point, was $1.8 billion. Here they are eight years later, the right. other side of World War II, 
Right. It's been reduced significantly because it went up to like 60, 70, 80 billion dollars during World War II. Yes. But it's it's been reduced significantly, but it's still mm-hmm. more plus times higher right. than it was eight years earlier before World War II. So it's still massive. That's a massive no, that's a four hundred percent increase in eight years. And the, and the war is over. And the war's over. But yes. it just gets bigger. So 1948, 9.1 billion. 1949 goes up to 13.1 billion. 1950, mm. 13.7. 1951, 23.5 billion. Wow. So it almost doubles from 50 to 51. 1952, 46 billion. Almost, yeah. well, it does double again. Yes. So it goes from 1.8 billion in 1940. To forty-six billion dollars, and again, this is in nineteen fifty-two dollars in nineteen fifty-two. Still, yeah. So, no, forty times higher mm-hmm. in just over a decade. Yeah, the U.S. defense budget in peacetime, yeah, increased by four thousand percent. Now. Their economy had done well during World War II, mostly as a result right. of military Keynesianism. But right. still, that's a big fucking increase, 4,000% increase in military budget. Yeah. I, those are numbers that I, I cannot even comprehend. And the one that you mentioned the year before Pearl Harbor, that was them already racking it up, knowing that war was coming and something would happen eventually. And even that pales in comparison to what it is now after the war is over with. But now we're planning for the next war. Yeah. And as as we explained in the very earliest episodes of this show when we were sort mm-hmm. of doing a breakdown of the economics of war and mm-hmm. we've gone over this a million times on the bullshit filter and I talked about it in the psychopath epidemic. You know, that money when 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 the US has a defense budget of 46 billion dollars in 1952. Right. That money is getting spent large amount of it, most of it, is getting spent on American goods and services, mm-hmm. uh, not just guns and bullets and planes and tanks um, right. and and ships, but on uh, people, you know, uh, mm-hmm. paying soldiers and, and uh, right. people who fly planes. What are they called again? Pilots. Pilots. Yeah, Guys yeah. on ships. Um, yeah. Homosexuals. I think they're called, and uh, and all of the stuff that you need to feed and clothe those people, um, and uh, everything like, and these all right. get come from American businesses. So, American yes. businesses uh, are on the tit of the yes. Pentagon love at this juncture. Yeah, they love the right. tit um, because you know they they have uh, you know. Um, um, Contracts to supply yeah. the Pentagon with everything. It's not just military supplies. It's all the sort of stuff that you need to run Support. a base, that yes. people need to live on, et cetera, and pencils and pads and, mm-hmm. and socks. Condoms. And right. condoms and, mm-hmm. and, and, and um, creams for warts on your butthole. <laughs> for the rest. It's everything, right? Right. Uh, and so it's when so- you see the budgets go up <laughs> yeah. by 4,000%, Right, you have to realize that these this is a massive increase in the amount of money that the U.S. government is taking from taxpayers mm-hmm. and giving to American businesses, essentially. Yes, um, and American businesses become addicted to that. It's like crack cocaine for American businesses. Yes. It's they a can't cheap work high. It. Yes. yes, you yeah. get addicted to yes. a certain amount of your uh, sales budget. Mm-hmm. Might be five percent, might be ten percent, might be fifty percent, might be eighty, ninety, a hundred percent in some cases. Right, right. Um, yeah, like, <clears throat> yeah, they yeah. become addicted to that, and their entire industries get built around entire businesses and industries get built around taking money from the Pentagon. Like right. I was talking yeah. to um, Bob Sullivan, one of our listeners, on email the other day about the. <laughs> the 70 or $100 billion, whatever's been allocated for Ukraine at the moment. And I was saying, you know, I absolutely am convinced that 
as soon as one of these things breaks out and, and it's announced that the US is going to start uh, providing aid to Ukraine, that there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of guys and girls in Washington that set up businesses oh, um, yes. whose like entire, the yes. entire purpose is mm-hmm. to get their hands on that cash to, to cash. give it to, you know, they have, a, they have an office in Kiev or a yeah. desk or, you know, an address of somebody <laughs> who knows Your a guy box. who has a desk in <laughs> Kiev. And they're like, well, you give me the money and I'll get it to my my go Boris right. in Kiev. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Oh, that would be... Yeah. That'd be great. Like, yeah. I don't have time to get it to Kiev. Right. If you can get it to Kiev, I'll get it to Kiev for yeah. you. Don't Trust you me. worry Trust about me. that. Yeah. I'll get it to Kiev. <laughs> and and some of it makes it to Kiev, but some of it sure. disappears along the way or, or ends Sticky up fingers. as a, a feat, yeah. you know, or, yeah. or it just gets lost on the way. Mm. There's entire businesses that are built around getting hold of that money. And then some of that goes into little brown paper bags that goes back to the Local senator or congressman yeah. or woman in yeah. in their district that says uh, keep the Thanks. tip. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, you know, there's more more of this. You you keep the tip right. flowing, and I'll make yeah. sure I'm still I'm kicking the money bags. into your yeah. uh, elect next election campaign, right? Exactly. And your retirement it, fund. Right. Exactly. And um, if while the um while the politicians are talking and the economic people are talking the other people that are talking are the military people and as far back as far as what we've covered with Caesar and Gaius Marius unless you have your 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 military it has to be structured it has to be organized there has to be a chain of command there has it has to be standardized and everything has to be able to work you need to be able to take pieces out and put it over here and men over here and they're cross trained the point is there's a lot to that you can't just willy-nilly say charge and you win. And everything has to be worked out. One, that takes money, but two, that also takes practice. And so what also impressed and gave the Europeans hope was when the military guys come over, they're like, they're like okay, the Americans are taking us seriously because they're t- they're wanting to see what we have done or what we're going to do to standardize everything from weapons, from transportations to communications. So this is gearing up. It looks like it's going to happen. But again, the Americans are uh, – they're st- – they're a bit hesitant because one, we're Americans, and two, we have the Constitution, and three, the senators don't like giving up the power to declare war. But it seems like they're working on these things, they're knocking them all out, and it's getting closer. So this is coming together in the various parts, and uh, the only hope is that the Soviet Russia won't do anything until they everybody can get their act together. Yeah. So uh, there's this problem still, though, as of mm-hmm. 1948, where the Joint Chiefs of Staff are uh, concerned about putting Europe's defence ahead of US defence. Yes, yes. The turning point seems to be when General Hoyt Vandenberg, right. the huh. Air Force Chief of Staff and nephew of <laughs> Senator Arthur <laughs> Vandenberg, um, right. a.k.a. Vandalay Industries, Admitted that U.S. security might be better served, yeah, by diverting some money away from the U.S.'s domestic defense budget right. and sending it to yeah. Europe for their defense I, as a buffer zone. Basically. Exactly. And you, Let's yeah, make you said Europe that earlier. the buffer zone. Fight over there, much better over there because America wasn't destroyed at the end of World War II. Let's see if we can repeat that if there's another war. It it's it makes sense militarily. It makes sense uh, on paper. It's kind of hard to actually, you know, how how any um, entity, any business, any corporation, any board. It's just hard to let go of money. You know, but it it does make sense. But when you have a powerful senator's nephew who's also a part of the military, go hey. This this would actually work in our favor. It's going to change minds like almost nothing else can. Yeah, and agreeing with Vandenberg was Omar Bradley, who at this mm-hmm. time was the Army Chief of Staff. He, right. In September 1948, he said, it would seem a great mistake to concentrate our entire resources on a uni- United States armament program in the belief that such action alone will contribute most to our national security. Right. He's right. Yeah. So, look, here's the bottom line, and this is what I've been looking for during all of these episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
The real story behind the Marshall Plan is, uh, sorry, behind NATO is this. Mm -hmm. The US decided that the Marshall Plan was a good economic investment to buy European markets and keep European countries out of the Soviet bloc and inside the American bloc. Right. B, they couldn't do that without being sure that the money and the products weren't going to fall into communist hands through a sudden Czechoslovakia-like communist coup. And C, Mm -hmm. stopping Western Europe from going communist was an important (laughs) part of the US defence strategy, Yes, not just military defence, but also defending our economic bloc. Right. Well, the military is there to defend the money. It's, it's always been the case. Yeah, military glory is great, but it's all about the Benjamins or whatever came before the Benjamins. It's all about protecting your assets. So NATO wasn't really about defending Western Europe from Russian aggression per se. But you that's, had to sell it, though. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. That's the way it was sold then. That's the way it is thought of now. Yes, and we pat but, ourselves on the back. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. Of, yeah, of course. You give yourselves yeah. reach-arounds all the time. That's what <laughs> Americans do best, giving yourselves a reach-around. But the story then was that right. they wanted to buy the Europeans, uh, A, for economic gain out of the US, B, to prevent the Russians taking over the European markets, mm-hmm. and they needed to defend that um, investment with some sort of military commitment. Now, yes. it was it was... To protect the money. Now, the question I have then, Ray, is if that was true then, Mm -hmm. in terms of the raison d'etre of NATO, is it still true today? I don't know. It. I don't know if it matters if it's true in reality. It's still the narrative that we tell ourselves, and as long as we have a bogeyman or boogeyman, as we say in America, you can do whatever you want. You can raise vast sums of money. No, no. My question is. Oh, I'm sorry. If the if the existence of if the creation of NATO right. was primarily to protect American money in Europe back mm-hmm. then, right. is that still the purpose of the true purpose of NATO today to protect American investments oh. in those regions? Yes. You know uh. as. As yes. people who listen to our bullshit filter show would know, is my mm-hmm. operating premise mm-hmm. about the Ukraine war has been and continues to be that the US and their allies mm-hmm. wanted to take Ukraine away from Russia as right. a market. Yeah, bring it to us. Yeah. Um, as, a, as a customer for energy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And to get access to their natural resources, etc., et and a, cu- a customer yes. to sell their other products and services exactly. to U- Ukraine, as we all know, yeah. has uh, always been in the Russian orbit, uh, mm-hmm. part of or friendly to the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, even right. after the um, dissolution of the. Soviet Union, yeah, Ukraine was very times. close to Russia. It's a big country. Right. It's a lot of people and yeah. a lot of money to be made. And America yes. wanted that market and didn't want to have to compete mano a right. mano with the Russians. Yeah. Um, and so the idea was let's bring Ukraine into NATO. Let's do a couple of coups. Let's bring Ukraine mm-hmm. into NATO and once we have our military bases there and our people on the ground there, much yeah. easier for us to influence yeah. the the economy of the country yes. and move uh, its trade away from Russia and towards us mm-hmm. and our allies. Russia, right. very well aware of that story and what was happening there, kept saying, yeah. don't do it, don't do it, don't, don't do it, it, don't do it. Don't the US me. kept saying, we're going to fucking do it, we're going to fucking do it, we're going to fucking do it. You can't stop us. And right. so Putin said, well, I gotta stop you All because right. this is yeah. this is bad news if it happens. He's obviously got his own uh economic interests and those of his right. friends uh yes. and partners in mind. Um and yeah. the US have their own. So well, let's face it, the Ukraine would be a great get. So we're going after it. Yes. At the end and of the, day. the US yeah. has been going after it since at least two thousand and four, uh, yeah. with the first 
coup that coup, happened yeah. there as part of the Orange Revolution. Yep. So the question now, Ray, is mm-hmm. now that the US has decided that they're going to uh, jointly fund a right. military alliance with uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, uh, 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 just adding on to what I just said in terms of the premise yeah. of NATO, when Donald Trump became president and started making talks of the US pulling out of NATO, right, obviously would not have made himself any friends uh, in no. the US because everybody knows, particularly yeah. the business leaders uh, and the, the political yeah. leaders in the US that are funded by the business leaders, the real purpose of NATO. NATO exists yeah. to protect American investments in uh, Europe. Yeah. And uh, if the US pulls out of NATO, who's then, going to protect American investments exactly. in yeah. Europe? So, yeah. yeah. That's as good as the idea of nuking a hurricane or tornado um, right up there. So let's bring him back. Anyway, but let's not. Um so we know that, and this again goes back to Caesar, goes back to Gaius Mars, hell, it goes back to Alexander the Great. If you're talking about a military entity, nothing is real, nothing makes sense. It's all just bullshit and talk and, and smoke and mirrors up until the point. This is the important thing. Up until the point, you pick someone to be an overall command because until you've done that, it's just an idea. It's just some thoughts on a whiteboard. Until you put someone in charge who can start building the body, building the structure, making decisions, taking it on on their own, that's when you know this is real. And so now that we've talked about the funding, we've talked about them working, trying to work something out, the Europeans want to see American commitment. The Americans want to see the Europeans are actually doing something to one day defend themselves if they have to. They've worked on a lot of this stuff out or they're working this stuff out. Now it's time to pick an overall commander. So that's how you know this is actually going to move forward because without a leader, it's just talk. Yeah. So they need somebody to be the commander-in-chief of the United yeah. Defence Force in Europe, and there were a few options. Um, yeah, we just had a one war. Was the, one was yeah. maybe an American candidate um, right. to do it, and, and the obvious guy was uh, Cassius Clay, General Cassius Clay. Right. He yes. would uh, later uh, become Muhammad Ali, but back then he was still I General Clay. And uh, White. Yeah, I don't know what happened. <laughs> it was like the rever- he did a reverse he, Michael Jackson. He's, he's that good. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. General Clay obviously still running West Germany for the Americans, right. and he was a candidate. Obviously, he'd spent a lot of time in Europe, but yeah. it was decided that he couldn't be spared. So then they started right. to consider British and French candidates. And who that were they, sense. Ray? So the uh, Americans are asked to uh, contribute ideas. One possible uh, appointment would be um, Field Marshal Bernard Law the Viscount Montgomery of El Alamein, uh, the man himself, the man, the myth, the legend, turns out to be an asshole, but we'll get to that later, um, Bernard Montgomery Law. So uh, there, there's him. Um, and like you were saying, the Joint Chiefs of Staff are going, we should have a Brit, we should have a, a French guy in there. Maybe the American could be the deputy. We'll work that out. So they're, so they're trying to go through this. And I'm going to butcher these names. So some of the uh, names that start coming out um, are, are Montgomery. Some are Sir Alexander, another Brit. Another one is General Alphonse Pierre Jeune. I'm not sure how to say his last name. Or General uh, Jean-Marie de La Tache de Tascany, uh, something like that, of France. So they're throwing out some names. But everybody wants this job. It would be a plum assignment. But who's going to get it? Who's going to back the right people? So... We had all this infighting. We get this far. Now we have to pick a supreme commander, and the infighting starts all over again because everybody wants this plum position. Mm. But but it turns out that Tuscany and Montgomery are dicks, but we'll get to that later. But they are in the running because they have the egos. They put themselves forward. They have people who put them, their names forward. So this is coming down to a clash of egos, if you will. So General Jeune was the first Jeune. choice of the United States. He had headed the French mm-hmm. and Allied troops in Italy in 1944, was the oh, chief right. of the combined general staff of the French Armed Forces in 1945, but he turned mm-hmm. the offer down. Yeah, he liked where he was. I think was he stationed, either stationed in North Africa or he was responsible for the troops in North Africa. But either way, 
He was a Frenchman and he was happy where he was. He said, uh, thank you very much, but I have to decline. I am terribly sorry. And he says no. And he exits stage left. So then the choice falls to two prima donnas, uh, <laughs> Montgomery <laughs> and yeah. General de Latre de Dossigny, both men who uh, one of the biographers observed were vain, ambitious, theatrical, visionary, mm. and passionate. Wait, wait, you wrote prima donna? I wrote Australian. Hold on, let me <laughs> fix that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! I'm done. Now, uh, Tassigny had been a division commander before Dunkirk, commander of the first mm. French army in the final year of the war. Montgomery, nice. of course, the hero of the Battle of Elamain, or the Second mm -hmm. Battle of Elamain, technically, mm -hmm. in northern Africa, and ended the war as the commander of the British forces in Germany. They both were in the running for right. the post of Commander-in-Chief of the Western Union Forces. Mm -hmm. And it was basically decided at the end of the day to split the two. Yeah. Uh, they well, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 They decided that the land Commander-in-Chief would be de Tassigny, um, mm -hmm. who ended up later on going on to fight in Vietnam French right. Indochina, uh, mm. with his son by his side and fighting the Viet Minh. Right. Had a couple of victories against the Viet Minh, but um, his son got killed and then he retired in, I think, 1952. <clears throat> uh, and right. the air commander-in-chief would be Monty. Yes. Uh, and let's talk about Montgomery because I'm sure you know a lot about him. I know nothing yeah. about him. Very um, famous, very big character. And so I, I did sort of a bio deep dive on Monty. And right. um, I found it very interesting, uh, some of the oh, stories. I, I, I think his middle name is Daxter. But we'll go into that. I, I, I did not know a lot about him. Not, I'm not a fan of him. So when you said, let's talk about Monty, I started going down. I'm like, oh, my God. Someone give this guy a therapist. Stat. Go ahead and start us. Montgomery was born in Surrey in 1887, the fourth child of nine. Mm -hmm. His father was a Church of Ireland minister, Henry Montgomery, and his him. mother was Maud. The Montgomerys Sorry. were an Ulster Scots gentry family, um, basically Scottish settlers who settled in Ulster, which is Northern Ireland in the 17th century. Right. The Reverend Henry Montgomery, uh, Monty's father, uh, at the time was the vicar of St. Mark's Church in Kennington and mm -hmm. himself was the second son of Sir Robert Montgomery, who was a... Mm colonial administrator in British India. Wow. He okay. um, died a month after his grandson's birth. Um, now, he himself was probably a descendant of Colonel Alexander Montgomery, who was an mm -hmm. Irish soldier and politician. So Irish went to Scotland, came back to Ireland <laughs> right. via Britain. Um, All over the place. Yeah, Alexander, the the like uh, great grandfather or mm -hmm. great 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 grandfather of uh, wow. World War II, Monty, bought a lot of land around County Carvin, part of Ulster, uh, which mm -hmm. means that he was probably oppressing the Riley clan who came from that Son area. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I fuck I've, him. Yeah, the Rileys are from County Cavan. <laughs> My dad was a Scot. He went the other way, but never went back. <laughs> right. But the but County Cavan is the home of uh, the, the Riley, the Harleth clan. Now, right. Bernard's mother, Maud, was also the daughter of a, a vicar, the very Reverend Frederick William Cannon Farrar, apparently was a Ooh, famous nah. preacher, but she right. was 18 years younger than yeah, her husband. So they liked the younger ladies, the Montgomerys, um, and after the death of Sir Robert Montgomery, Henry, our Monty's father, inherited right. the Montgomery ancestral estate of New Park and Ulster. But 
there was a lot of money owed on the place, £13,000 on a mortgage, which was a lot of money in the 1880s, basically one and a half million pounds in today's dollars. And they had nine kids. You need money for nine kids. Good God. Yeah. And he's a vicar at the time. Yeah. Um, So that's a lot of money money for a vicar. So he sold off a lot of property, a lot of farms, still barely enough money to keep the place running. But- in 1889, he was made Bishop of Tasmania, the little island off the south coast right. of Australia, which at the time was still a British colony. And they were off. still in Sorry. the process of killing the entire indigenous population down there, which yes. they finally managed yes. to do. Now, here comes the sad beginnings of Dexter Park. Daddy was gone. He was the bishop. So he's gone a lot. He's gone like months out of the time. The mom is in her twenties. She's got nine kids. She can't cope. So the only way she knows how to deal with her children, or should I say discipline her children is the short and swift method of beating the shit out of them. So she beat these kids a lot and then went off and smiled and did her bishop wife of bishop duties, whatever. Uh, so, so it's no surprise that Monty turns out to be a bully himself because he was bullied by his mother. And that's just the beginning of a slippery slope of a life of a, how should I put this? Not very nice person. Yeah. Major psychological and emotional damage done to the young Monty by his mother, by the sounds of it. He himself later said, I was a dreadful little boy. I don't suppose anybody would put up with my sort of behavior these days. So, Mm. you know, maybe he deserved the beatings or maybe the beatings made him worse. We don't know. Right. Later in life, though, when his mother died, Montgomery (laughs) didn't go to her funeral and refused to allow his son to have anything to do with her while yeah. she was alive or attend her funeral. So no that love lost some... between right. Montgomery. I mean, I didn't go to yeah. my father's funeral, so I I know yeah. for, for similar reasons. You can reasons. relate. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So the family returned to England once in 1897. Bernard, our Montgomery, and his brother right. Harold went to King's School in Canterbury. Then he went on to the Royal Military College in Sandhurst where – He was a bit of a dick, Um, almost expelled for violence and rowdiness. He was argumentative at Staff College. According to the recollections of one alumni, one student at the Army Staff College was sentenced as his punishment to sit next to Monty at breakfast for a week. Yeah. I mean, you get the sense that even if he's not physically beating you, he's probably a dick. He's probably dominating. He's probably domineering. And he's just not a nice guy. My kids are nearby, so I can't use the C word. But uh, you just get the sense that he was a jerk right out the gate. The C word. Is that Cameron? Is is that the C word? That's even worse. I can't. I definitely can't say that word. The uh, staff col- Army Staff College magazine once posed this conundrum. If it takes mm-hmm. 10 truckloads of 9.2 Mark V Star India pattern to stop one bath on the second floor of the Staff College from leaking, how many mm-hmm. hay nets with full echelons would be required to stop Monty from burbling at breakfast? <laughs> There's a cut. Is it? He's a cunt at breakfast, he's a cunt at lunch, and he's an even bigger cunt at dinner. Wow. The magazine wow. also had a page of things we would like to know, and one of them was, if and where does Monty observe two-minute silence on Armistice Day? <laughs> so he had a reputation <laughs> for being annoying and never shutting up. He graduated in 1908, was commissioned into the 1st Battalion of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment as a second lieutenant, mm-hmm. And was sent to India that year, gets promoted to lieutenant in 1910, 1912, becomes an adjutant, Mm. basically a guy doing administration, HR type stuff uh, in the army camp of the 1st Battalion of his regiment at Shawncliffe Army Camp, served in World War I, got shot in the lung and the knee. What is it with the lung? Kept fighting. military heroes. It's a big big target. Um, And... Apparently, he was influenced a lot during World War One by mm-hmm. his experience uh, of the leadership or lack thereof of the senior commanders. He right. later wrote, 
there was little contact between the generals and the soldiers. I went through the whole war on the Western Front, except during the period I was in England after being wounded. I never right. once saw the British commander-in-chief, neither French nor Hague, and only twice did I see an army commander. The higher staffs were out of touch with the regimental officers and with the troops. The former lived in comfort, which became greater as the distance mm -hmm. of their headquarters behind the lines increased. There was no right. harm in this, provided there was touch and sympathy between the staff and the troops. This was yeah. often lacking. At most large headquarters and back areas, the doctrine seemed to me to be that the troops existed for the benefit of the staff. My war experience wow. led me to believe that the staff must be the servant of the troops and that a good staff officer must serve his commander and the troops, but himself be anonymous. The frightful casualties appalled me. The so-called good fighting generals of the war appeared to me to be those who had complete disregard for human life. There were, of course, exceptions, and I suppose one such was Plumer. I'd only seen him once and had never spoken to him. This is Field Marshal Plumer, um, mm. who later went on to be a fairly reasonable uh, high commissioner in the British Mandate for Palestine, actually. Mm. Cool. Um, so what did Monty do between the wars, Ray? Well, first of all, after, after that experience, he was never mean to anyone again. I think that's important. Oh, no, that's a different Monty. Sorry. Well, let me just do this because I enjoyed this too much. So he he he, uh, he is able to go to staff college. He, he's able to charm an officer during a tennis match. He, he is able to go to staff college in Surrey. He earns, uh, because he wants to earn a high command one day, he graduates, he's promoted. He's now a, a brigade major in the 17th Infantry Brigade. He goes to Ireland to County Cork. And he is focused on the counterinsurgency operations there. And this is what he writes after he leaves Ireland. He wrote, my own view is that to win a war of this sort, you must be ruthless. Oliver Cromwell or the Germans would have settled it in a very short time. Nowadays, public opinion precludes such methods. The nation would never allow it. And the politicians would lose their jobs if they sanctioned it. So again, he goes, look, I've, I've dealt with terrorists. You just got to go in there and kill everybody. If you would just let me do this, this could have been handled a long time ago. Would there be any people left in Ireland? No. But would it be peaceful? Yes. So again, he's he started out with his mom beating him, and now he thinks the best way to win is just to be absolutely ruthless. But as you said a couple of minutes ago, he does get that everything should be supporting the soldiers because they're the ones doing the actual fighting. Did we want to talk about his first attempted courtship in 1925? He's in his late 30s. She's 17, and he asks for her hand in marriage. She sees that he's driven. She sees that he, she's in, that he's um, ambitious, but there's something, some red flags, uh, and she says no. But in 1927, he meets Elizabeth Betty Carver, and she already had two children from a marriage, but they do get married, and they have their own child, David, in August of 1928. So now he's a family man until 1937 when she dies. So he did love her. It did affect him deeply, and he went deeper into his work instead of dealing with the pain of his dead wife. Yeah, I was, before we move on too quickly, Sorry. I was yes. going to talk about uh, the famous McCroom incident when he was in Ireland. Oh, please. Please. So in 1922, he led a force of 60 soldiers and four armoured cars to this Irish town of McCroom mm -hmm. to search for four British officers who were missing in that area. Oh, shit. And yeah. so he he rolls up with a reasonable-sized force. Mm -hmm. He's under strict orders not to attack the IRA. He arrives right. in the town square in front of McCroom Castle and summoned the IRA commander, a guy called Charlie Brown, to parley. Mm -hmm. Um, at the castle gates, Montgomery spoke to Brown explaining that what would happen if they didn't release the officers, right. basically made some threats. Once he finished, Brown said, uh, thank you very much. Get out of the town. You've got 10 minutes. And then turned wow. around and walked away. And <laughs> when wow. Montgomery's trying to figure out what to do next, another IRA officer whistled to Montgomery and then just pointed around, and he saw that there were guys who had taken up firing positions all around the square surrounding Montgomery's um, 60 I guys. I shot myself. I shot and my so head. Montgomery had to turn tail and uh, run away. 
And uh, there was questions about this in the House of Commons. But uh, little did he know the four officers had already been executed for being spies by the Irish. Yeah. So, yes, he courts the 17-year-old girl when he's in his late 30s. I would. I'm going to add that out. But she was your niece. Um, (laughs) The family that plays together stays together. Tried to impress her by telling her how he would deploy his tanks and infantry in a future war. Uh, She was like, okay. (laughs) I'm just going to ease. I'm going to slowly walk back. Until I'm gone and he can't, and then I'm going to run. Daddy! Yeah, she was smart. She was smart. Yeah, and his wife, uh, who he ended up marrying, died when uh, she got an insect bite, which became infected and died from septicemia following the amputation of her leg, died in his arms in 1937. That messed him up. She she actually, uh, I don't think you mentioned this, you said she had two sons from a previous marriage. She was married mm-hmm. to an Olympic uh, rower, a guy called oh, Oswald wow. Carver, who died during World War One. So that's what happened. Right. Okay. Anyway, she dies. Uh, he did stints in India and Palestine, where he was involved mm-hmm. in putting down the Arab revolt over Jewish immigration right. in the late thirties. Yeah. And when World War Two breaks out, he is a major general. He immediately gets himself into trouble. Mm. He issued a pamphlet to his troops. <laughs> On the prevention of venereal disease, which, uh, of course, is a big problem. Um, Yes. (laughs) And despite my best efforts, I could not get a copy of this. I couldn't. Yeah. Even GPT couldn't find me a copy of it. Um, I really went looking hard for it. But apparently involved a a lot of (laughs) obscene language. That yes. both the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church objected to, and right. uh, he nearly got fired as a result of this pamphlet. Yeah. So it must have yeah. been an absolute ripper. But he have basically you, he managed to save his job. Have you? Have you? Did you watch any videos on him? Do you have a sense of his voice? No. Okay, because because it pretty much goes like this: Look here, man. These French whores are dirty. They are filthy. And if you go in there, you will certainly get the cop. And we don't need that. We need to cop the Germans, not cop each other. So don't fuck the locals, all right? Something like that. But he had this kind of high-pitched clip in you, so I imagine. But yeah, the language The British Army, if you need to fuck anything, fuck each other. That's right. That's how we did it at King's (laughs) College, and that's how I expect you to do it. And Sandhurst. Yes. Oh, I miss... buttholes first. (laughs) (laughs) Old Andy's bum... Oh, oh, my youth. Anyway, Remember, it's so, not gay if you're in the army. <laughs> I could order you to. No, well, we're one trenches. We had to <laughs> give each other reach-arounds. Oh, I so, saw yeah, some so, trenches then. I was in a trench and right. I was up a trench every right. day. Let, let me say something nice about him uh, a professional, as a professional soldier. So he goes over with the BEF to France at the beginning of the war. Obviously, the Germans don't attack until May 10th, 1940. Anyway, so he's got to move his men from one position, position to another because the Belgians are starting to collapse. Plus, the king is about to pull them out of the war. Anyways, so he gets the orders to move his men at night. Now, while everybody else is screwing the uh, French maids and getting drunk he is constantly drilling his men he's all about professionalism he's all about preparedness uh good for him so what he does is he rigs up a line of jeeps and and it's at night and he says i'm going to put a light at the back bottom part of the jeep so no one else can see it except for the person that's right behind this jeep and together and trucks and jeeps and we're going to drive from where we are now to where we need to be in the morning because the germans are going to attack it was i know it sounds simple but it was a brilliant move it was effective no one else had thought of it but he had already worked it out in his head a long time ago so uh there was a even though the bef has to retreat or the the uh, miracle of dunkirk he is able he is a competent commander he has been thinking a lot about war and he knows what he wants to do in certain situations so in that sense he is a professional. It's just talking to him out of uniform. You get the sense that he's a bit of a dick. So in 1942, he's appointed commander of the British Eighth Army in North Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, he has to fight uh, against Rommel and his yeah. uh, tank brigades at the Battle of El Alamein. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wins, and it's a it's sort of a big turning point. 
The the right. Axis powers are trying to get control of Africa, by the way, so they can get control of the Suez Canal, the Mediterranean, all of the oil in the Middle East, and mm-hmm. the British are trying to keep control of all of those strategic assets. There yes. was the first Battle of El Alamein um, that was led by uh, General Claude Auchinleck. Mm-hmm. Uh, they managed to sort of sort of neutral. They managed to halt the Axis advance. Right. He gets replaced by uh, Harold Alexander as the commander in chief. Montgomery takes over the Eighth Army, and uh, he has a great success uh, against yes. Rommel, who you know Rommel had. Um, more tanks, more air support, more artillery, two weeks of intense fighting, and uh, 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 Montgomery manages to break through the Axis lines. Rommel has to retreat, and uh, it's sort of a big turning point, not only in the North African campaign, but also in World War II as a whole. It was the first significant defeat of German forces by the British, and this, you know, boosted their morale gave them the sense that, hey, maybe we're not just a bunch of um, fucking useless uh, French fuckers. Yabos, um, right, yeah. Maybe, no, he, maybe. He, mm. Yeah. So, no, he was able to um, get down on the men's level. They saw him a lot. Remember, you you read the quota. He never saw commanding officers. He spent a lot of time with the men. He had cigarettes pr- passed out. He would talk to them. He would use sports metaphors. We're going to knock them for six. I don't know anything about the, the cricket thing. Um, it's a, it's but, a game. You know, the, it's not cricket. It's, it's a game. game. <laughs> That's all I need to know. Okay. No, but but the men, but he did spend time with them. Uh, he, they did love love him for it, and they fought hard for him. So as far as being a commander of men, he did a very effective, good job. And he was great at planning, and he had the courage to stand up to Churchill and go, I'm not going to fight until I'm ready, fucker. Whereas Auchinleck and everyone else got fired because they wouldn't listen to Churchill. He stood up to Churchill. Anyway. So he goes on to command the British forces during the invasion of Sicily in 43, mm-hmm. is given command of the Allied ground forces for the D-Day landings in Normandy in 44, um, right. coordinates the British, Canadian, and American efforts for the uh, what at the time was obviously the mm-hmm. biggest amphibious uh, invasion in history. Yes. After that, he commanded the Allied forces at the Battle of the Bulge, and goes on during the Rhine crossings and the capture of Hamburg to play a big role in those. Gets promoted to field marshal, yeah, in 1944, which is the highest rank in the British Army, basically the equivalent of a five-star general in the US. They, they've right. they've only had a few. Oh, good old yeah. um, Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington, was one, mm-hmm. aka right. the luckiest bastard in history. Um, <laughs> But Montgomery was notorious for his lack of tact and diplomacy. Even his biggest champion, uh, Sir Alan Brooke, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, would mention it a lot in his war diaries, like this quote uh, talking about Montgomery. He is liable to commit untold errors in lack of tact, and I had to haul him over the coals for his usual lack of tact and egotistical outlook, which prevented him from appreciating other people's feelings. He said Montgomery suffered from an overbearing conceit and an uncontrollable urge for self-promotion. General Hastings Ismay was um, Winston Churchill's chief staff officer once said of Montgomery, I've come to the conclusion that his love of publicity is a disease like alcoholism or taking drugs and that it sends him equally mad. Reminds me of uh, somebody else, Ray. Um, I don't know. Well, Douglas MacArthur is who I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm sorry. Um, I I don't want to cut you off. Did you read the quote by his stepson? It's pretty cutting. Um, Yes. He says, okay, yeah, he says, his mother had arguably done the country a favor by keeping his personal oddities, his extreme single-mindedness and his intolerance and of suspicion of the motive of others within reasonable bounds long enough for him to have a chance of attaining high command. So he's scheming and plotting constantly, and he kind of admits it, but he has a a good public uh, appearance, good public face, but at the same time, he doesn't trust anybody else who's scheming or planning to get ahead as well. So again, just a really messed up person, on one hand, but on the other hand, he was an effective commander. So 
you can take the good with the bad. Yeah, he becomes, after the war, he becomes Commander-in-Chief of the British Army of the Rhine and Mm -hmm. uh, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, the SIGs. That's uh, Succeeding Alan Brooke, who was sort of his patron. Mm -hmm. Right. Then I found this interesting. In 1947, he toured Africa and then wrote a Mm. secret 1948 report to Clement Attlee proposing a master plan to amalgamate all of British African territories and exploit the raw materials of Africa, counteracting their loss of influence in Asia. Mm -hmm. So like Churchill, um, a good colonialist. Yes. um, Other people are good for us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Their stuff is better if we have it. Was happy earlier in his career to go in and kill all of the Irish, despite his family's uh, deep and long centuries-old connections to Northern Ireland. Just wanted to go in and kill them all. And uh, was more than happy to um, go and just oppress the Africans. So, again, like, you know, not good guys, these guys that are sort of the – you know, I think are remembered, particularly by the British, as uh, great heroes of World War mm-hmm. II. Right. You know, we were fighting the Nazis. Why they were the bad guys, and <laughs> what did he want to do afterwards? Go and oppress the Africans. Uh, well, it, that's, it takes a bad a guy. It takes a bad guy to fight another bad guy. Yeah. You probably ran across this as well. So when he does get the uh, the when he does get tasked to work with the. Uh, NATO and all the other things that we were talking about. He says, um, by now there were plenty of people anxious to see the back of me. When I recall those days, I often think that Whitehall was my least happiest theater of war. So even when he was there, he hated it. He rubbed everybody the wrong way. They rubbed him the wrong way. And when he got to go to Fontainebleau or however you say it in France, he was kind of happy to go. He's like, fuck you guys. I'm out of here. But he had, he had made a lot of enemies pretty much wherever he went. Yeah. Clement Attlee didn't like him um, when uh, when Montgomery like did not yeah sorry when Montgomery was uh, leaving his term of office um, as I think uh, chief of uh, staff Mm -hmm. um, for the military he had told his protege that he would be able to uh, take over his role Clement Attlee appointed somebody else. And when Montgomery said, well, I told Sir John Crocker that he could take over, Attlee told him, untell him. <laughs> so Attlee didn't really like He'll him. He'll fuck around. And, uh, now, you've anyway, seen pictures of Attlee. He's kind of wimpy looking, but the guy was balls of steel. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Remember, we told that story. He used to ride his bike oh, around right. everywhere in the early days. And Tough. Spreading socialist propaganda. Yes, uh, creating, that. creating unions. He was a union organizer. Yes. So anyway, Montgomery yes. was created the first Viscount Montgomery of Alamein in mm-hmm. 1946, made up just for him to That's recognize right. his victory in El Alamein. Yeah. As of 2022, the title is held by his grandson, Henry Montgomery, the third Viscount Montgomery of Alamein, after right. his father died in 2020. But there are no heirs because he hasn't do, had any sons. Um, he's got three daughters. Right. But apparently, I'll do them. In this day and age, uh, women don't get to. Viscountess. No. Yeah, yeah, that's still Vicar. dick moves. Still dick moves. Yeah. It still has to go to the male, the oldest male. Yeah. Women, it's not like we're in sorry. 2023. <laughs> sorry, women. Maybe next time, maybe not. Yeah. Probably not. But I think maybe for your contributions to World War II history, yeah, they you should. should in you should be made the fourth Viscount Montgomery of Alamein. Yes. Or 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 like. the first Viscountess. I I'll take it. You probably you, fucked it by saying at the beginning of this episode that you didn't like Montgomery. I probably um, put a spanner in the works. Yeah, that was that yeah. was my bad. That was my you bad. You can edit that out later. I can't and I will. Well, I just wanted to do that, I, I think, to wrap up uh, yes. our, our series on NATO. I think we got to the point. We understand now. So just to recap, NATO yeah. was created to defend America's investment in buying the Western European economy uh, and, and establish long-term trade relationships. 
there and to prevent it going into uh, Soviet-friendly hands and being part of the Soviet bloc. That's why NATO was created. It really wasn't to defend Western Europe against Russian aggression because there was no Russian aggression at the time. They weren't invading shit. They didn't plan to invade shit. They had no plans to invade shit. (laughs) They barely Uh, had any shit. It was... Yeah. It was just, yeah. uh, there were, though, uh, some healthy domestic socialist movements in those yes. countries, Good like point. happened in Czechoslovakia, was sort of happening in France, in Italy, Italy, Greece, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. Yeah. And the Americans wanted to shut that shit down because <laughs> they were going to invest $13 billion in the yeah. Western European economy. So um, that is why NATO was created. And I would argue, is the main reason for its existence today. It's to build and support the American trading block. And I guess we'll be back next episode with something else Cold War related. <laughs> Who the fuck yes. knows? We don't yes. know. We don't have a plan. What makes no. you think we have a plan? Wing it. We have a plan. We, we love it when work a plan it out. comes together. We'll work it out. Yeah, we'll work it out. Or not. <laughs> we'll work or it not. out. Or not. <laughs> All right. That's it. Curtain has descended across the continent.